Hey, what's up? It's Nick here. James and I sit down and chat a little bit about what we've been up to for the past couple of weeks on our break. We also talk about AI versus Web3 as opposing forces. We also chat about our topic of the week, which is designing under constraints. As always, you guys know the deal. Like and subscribe on YouTube. Give us that thumbs up. It really helps us out. Um, Spotify actually has stars now. So if you haven't already, go give us some five stars on Spotify and a follow as well. Um, of course, there's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Do all those things. You guys know the deal. And if you have any thoughts or questions or topic ideas, send them into Podcast at gmail.com. And yeah, let's hear that amazing intro by Kyoshi the Kid. two designers in the big city sweating the small stuff few hey nick how have you been it feels like it's been a while since we last recorded yeah it has been a busy couple of weeks i've been working on a, a new project at the office and trying to balance that with some personal projects how about you same it's been a hectic few weeks i've been trying to get out and explore the city more on the weekends to balance out the long hours at work oh nice have you found any new hidden gems in the city yeah actually i stumbled upon this really cool graffiti alley in brooklyn it's filled with all sorts of colorful street art and it's a great spot for photography oh wow i'll have to check that out so today we wanted to dive deeper into the topic of conceptual design it's something that often generates a lot of buzz and discussion in the design world but what exactly is it and why is it important yeah conceptual design refers to designs that are more focused on exploring ideas and making a statement rather than being practical or functional It's a way for designers to push the boundaries and challenge the status quo. Right. And these designs can be anything from furniture to fashion to architecture. The main focus is on the concept behind the design rather than the actual execution. Exactly. And while these designs may not always be practical or feasible, they can still inspire new ways of thinking and lead to innovative solutions. For example, remember that chair made entirely out of bubblegum that was impossible to sit on. While it may not have been functional, It definitely got people thinking about the materials and techniques used in furniture design. Yeah, it's not just about creating designs for the sake of being weird or attention grabbing. It's about using conceptual design as a tool to explore ideas and challenge the norm. I agree. But at the same time, we also have to consider the resources and time that go into creating these conceptual designs. As designers, we have a responsibility to use our skills and resources in a way that has a positive impact. Yeah, that's a good point. It's all about finding a balance and considering the bigger picture. Definitely. And it's not just about the final product. The design process itself can be a valuable learning experience. Absolutely. It's all about embracing the weird and seeing where it takes us, as long as we do it in a way that's mindful of our resources and impact. Agreed. Thanks for tuning in to Minor Details. We'll see you next time. (laughs) Oh, man. That was a lot longer than I thought. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, we sound pretty good, pretty smart. What's up, James? Not much. How you doing, <laughs> Nick? Do we even need to be here anymore? <laughs> um, just bursting my thirst over here. Yeah, shout out to uh, our friend Derek Cassio. <laughs> Derek Cassio. <laughs> I got. I have without I was, an, without a generated <laughs> script, you don't remember people's names. I was I was thinking Derek Elliott because I was just mm. we were just talking about Derek Elliott. Um, yeah, I uh, I've been dabbling around with the AI. Been talking to the de- the devil, as you might have noticed. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, big shout out to Play HT, which was the software uh, they let us use one of their professional versions, so that we could upload, you know, five hours of podcasts and have it copy our voices. <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, it's it's wild. I mean, it'll only get better. Yeah. I mean, I think the funny thing is, is uh, I used ChatGPT to write the script as well. Mm. Um, so and the, what did you put into ChatGPT to to generate it? I well, the funny thing about that is, I wish I I'd, I had had the history saved, but I think what I did is I asked it for 
a new podcast script based on an old script. Mm. So I just like went to YouTube and downloaded the closed captions oh, okay. and just copied and pasted in there and said, Hey, use this as a reference mm. um, for how we talk. And then I asked it, it, it gave me some stuff and I was like, okay, I had to tweak it a little bit. I was like, add in an intro where we just chat about our week. And apparently you've been taking photography yeah, in back alley you know, Brooklyn. It's back a passion of mine. Um, and then I asked it to talk about a topic of design and it came up, actually it came up with a few topics that I didn't like. Um, I think like the first topic was like technology and design. Um, and then there was like sustainability and design. And then I thought the conceptual one was funny just because it had the bubblegum chair reference, which I have no clue what the bubblegum chair even is. <laughs> but I was like, that's an interesting one where it's coming up with something kind of unique. Mm. Um, Cause other ones felt very generic. This one felt generic as well, but yeah. you know what it kind of feels like when I was listening back into it, it feels like, We've been taken hostage by the design mafia, and there's like a gun pointed at our head, and we're like, "Design is a great tool to improve the world." You know, it's like, um, yeah. There's no, there's also no ums or likes or any pauses. Yeah, it's way too professional, yeah, very robotic. <laughs> but I think, I think it'll probably get there. I know that you can add in ums and likes. I couldn't get it to do a sweat few. I couldn't do a. But like, what what would ultimately be the point of like having technology like that? Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing about this software, the the voice AI, is I'm curious to see what business uh, avenues it kind of fits into. I feel like it fits into more instructional videos, mm. um, more production videos. I think podcast is an interesting one where part of the podcast is more personality based and less audio voice content based. Yeah. Um, that was just one kind of insight that I had doing it, but yeah. Do you ever, do you ever find those YouTube videos that are just like, you're trying to maybe find the top five espresso machines from like 2022 and it's just some, weird like slideshow with a with like a computer generated voice like yeah. describing each of them yeah. like it's not it's not some professional like james hoffman or seattle coffee gear being right. like and here's our top picks and here's why i mean i always feel cheated by those videos the interesting thing about those videos is i feel like they're getting better and better mm. um i feel like now you have fiverr you have these kind of gig work sites where you can ask, you know, random people or you can find a person that you really work well with that can write a script and then you can take that script and give it to a voice actor and then you can give the voice uh, and script to an editor that yeah. can put in images. I've seen oh. a few of those kind of videos, which I, you know, I sometimes watch some of those videos because it's yeah. like, that's oh, quality content. I wonder if, I yeah, I wonder about like the sort of the future of audiobooks mm. of just like, Whoever, whoever I want to read an audiobook, like I can have them yeah. read my audiobook uh, to me. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's weird. I, I mean, I have to imagine there's like more functionality than just that. I think what you're saying, yeah, like people creating uh, instructional content, or yeah, they're just like they can't hire a voice actor or somebody. So they're just going to use that. And I've also seen like AI, uh, people that like will read right. the scripts like as, deep, deep fakes. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean the technology like here. instructional videos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is kind of wild to think about. I mean, I know we, I know we have our AI bit in every episode now it feels like, but, yeah. um, and I thought that was fun and exciting just cause, I think we had talked about it on a couple episodes ago where we were joking about replacing our voice. Yeah. And now we finally have uh, access to try it. And I don't know. It, I you don't guys know. have to let us know this what you whole, about it. This whole industry <laughs> kind of is clearly being funded by big porn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <It's> I mean, <laughs> that's the internet will always Anybody's take the tools. voice, anybody's likeness. And I mean, come on. Mm. All for the perverts. What, um, what have you been up to, James? I mean, I guess it's been, we had our little break. 
Um, first uh, first episode back in the new year. Yeah, I mean, uh, Christmas and New Year's have passed, yeah. and uh, and then another week where my entire family got sick upon no. returning from Christmas and New Year's. Oh man, yeah, that was not fun. But um, but it was nice. We were down in Florida again. That's um, good. How was some warm ha- weather? Yeah. Uh, how was your Christmas? Did you get anything good? I. Uh, we don't really do gifts anymore. No? No, we just get checks. Uh, I gave, the only gift that was given was I gave my sister's cat some more cat toys <laughs> that I designed. You know, my famous cat Only toys. the cat got a, got actual physical gifts. Um, look, I got, I got. Everybody stuff. else is just trading stocks. I, oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, we've talked about these cat toys before. But now I have one for each finger, like the uh, Thanos or whatever. Is that his name? <laughs> Thanos. Isn't that a thing? Thanos? The, I don't know. I don't watch that movie. But If you snap your fingers, you'll break all of them simultaneously. <laughs> yeah. um, I do love these things. Yeah. It's just the silly, little, pla- the silly little plastic plastic ball. Oh, oh James is juggling. Oh, <laughs> um, oh man. Oh, boy. Uh, those are fun. Yeah, toys going everywhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was good. I also saw our friend Derek Elliott, the other Derek. Oh, yeah, um, because you were in Austin. Yeah. Derek and I have been working on a animation and renders for the new sofa. Well, the Polish sofa that I've been working on, which I don't know how much we've talked about it on the podcast. Um, yeah. The stuff has been out for a while. I just, I haven't released it necessarily on my socials or put out a press release or anything like that just because um, I want to make a big bang. It's like my first production furniture yeah. line. Well, should we talk about it at that point or should yeah, we we'll talk, talk about we'll, it We'll now. talk about that. Point. Okay. Uh, but I'm just teasing it because, you yeah, know, yeah. the pod listeners get the, get the tease. The, yeah. The, the early info. Well, I did receive gifts because, you know, my family loves yeah. me. What did you get? <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, no, I, I, I mean, there's like a, f- there's some standouts. I got a nice, like Charlie Brown style hat from Allison. Wait, what's the hat look like? It, it's like one of those ones that has the flaps that you can like button got underneath, okay. but you can also button up here. Um, and she also got me this, um, this thing for, cause we were obviously flying a lot. Uh, it's like this dongle thing for pairing like Bluetooth to like a, to like an airline seat. Cause all of them just still have audio jacks. Oh, interesting. But you can also pair two sets of headphones to it. That's kind of nice. So people, two people can watch the same movie. Yeah. Okay. So that was, that was cool. Uh, my sister-in-law got me one of those, um, fellow coffee vacuum sealers. The ones that you like, okay. you put in and you twist the cap and it pulls all the air out. N- never heard of that. That's cool. It's nice. Cool. Oh yeah. Fellow. I, I always, as I said before, I fellow is like You're one fan. of the modern companies that like when they release something, it's like as exciting to me as an Apple right. release. Because like, you're like, this is like your hobby is making coffee. Yeah. And speaking of which, <laughs> I think the the best gift for everybody was the fact that my father-in-law got my mother-in-law a, um, a DeLonghi espresso machine nice. that has like the grinder, the tamp lever. Nice. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think we were all just like, waiting for it to be <laughs> unboxed uh like, i was just like i spot. was just arrow pressing yeah. until that day and <laughs> I, I just i i mean that should have been an early opening you should have early opened that good i that know good. but it very like similar i think to you know the breville machines except like where Breville are the uh, brush metal boys, DeLonghi mm-hmm. is in the chrome zone. Mm. They, they've decided chrome and black, like yeah. that's, their, that's their vibe. That's the, uh, that's the aesthetic of those machines. Is the DeLonghi one more industrial looking or is it more appliance looking? I, I would say it's almost more, more traditional coffee espresso machine. I mean, Styling wise, like if you were to break it down to just like the form, oh, no, none, none of those are it. It's got the hopper on top. It should be, 
Yeah. Um, mm, it's kind of... Like this one? Yeah. It's yeah. A, or almost like kitchen eighty in some way. Yeah, um, I, can, I can see that vibe. But... They, but in terms of like the form itself, yeah, that one on the left, on the very left there. Oh, that's nice. Ooh, the, yeah, yeah. In terms of the form, I would say it's not too dissimilar from the Breville machines. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we've, I, you know, my, my, I got the Breville espresso machine. Yeah. I think, how much, how much are they? I think they're, it was pretty expensive. It was like $600, $700 or something. Yeah. But it ha- comes with everything, the grinder, yeah. uh, the tamper, everything you need. Yeah. It's so well designed. And I think we've talked about it on the podcast, but all the little details are so well designed. But I just, I love the look of those old school, very utilitarian, like espresso boxes. I yeah. think the one I like the always, sheet metal. The sheet metal, like what's the rocket or the yeah. EMC one. Um, La Marcosa. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's cool. It was great. Uh, so that was, that was a real highlight. Um, still specialista, ha- DeLonghi Los Specialistas. Yeah, that's have. it. Okay. Still, still haven't figured out. Have you gotten proficient at latte art, foaming <laughs> the milk and everything? I always do iced. I always. Do oh, iced. really? Yeah. I've tried a few warm drinks, but I don't necessarily enjoy warm drinks. So mm. it's it's almost like just a fun activity. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny because Allison can't understand why. I do prefer cold drinks, but to me, like the efficiency of it, I, I like the taste and I like the temperature of cold, but also just like the efficiency mm, of the drink Easy. is, yeah. Like I'm, I'm never in the situation anymore where I have like half an hour to sit down it's and drink st- a single <laughs> cup of coffee. That just doesn't, that's You're not throwing it down the hatch. to me. Yeah, exactly. Oh man. Um, but yeah, but yeah, we got back from vacation and just one by one, everybody got sick. Went down like flies. Yeah, basically. But you're all better now. All better That's now. Um, been working on my little hay bale sofa. Yeah. Uh, that was like a fun little activity, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what you would call it. Um, back, back with the straps, I guess. Yeah. I got straps on my mind. I don't know what that's about. But I, I know what it's about, <laughs> Nick. It's not about that. I know what it's about. Uh, this, is, this, this podcast is PG. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say, I think it's the, the one kind of notable thing about that project, aside from the design. Obviously, the design was kind of inspired by hay bales. I think probably if you're listening to the podcast, you probably already saw it. Um, but you know, it's just a modular system that you can kind of stack and rearrange however you like. I've been like seeing a lot of the Togo furniture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that one kind of sofa that's really low and it kind of looks like a caterpillar or a slug. Mm. Uh, oh it's, yeah. It's pretty popular right now. Um, I feel like a lot of that furniture is coming back and I was listening to some, I don't know, trend. I think it might've been a reel or a TikTok where they were saying the reason this type of furniture is coming back, because the Togo is an interesting sofa system because it's a very low sofa. Mm-hmm. Normally sofas are maybe like 16 inches tall um, seat height. And the Togo is like 12 inches tall. So you get a, you, you're sitting way, four inches lower. Mm. So you're kind of almost sitting on the ground. It's like a big cushion at that point, beanbag style. And they were saying because TVs have kind of gone out of style. Most people are just being entertained on their phone. Mm. Everyone likes to just sit and lounge in these lower sofas. Um, I thought that was an interesting insight. Yeah. Uh, and it, it had me thinking. I was, cause I was thinking about doing some sort of modular, really kind of low cushion sofa. And that obviously working on the strap box kind of was on the strap trend and kept going with it. Um, yeah, I also released an NFT with the sofa, which I think there was a few questions about it. Cause the, I think there's still people that kind of see NFTs as like a thing that they were asking, like, why is this an NFT project? And I think in my mind, like just to reiterate, like I think NFTs are kind of a tool or a technology. It's almost to me like a website. If you put something on your website, it doesn't mean 
the chair is a website project, right? It's yeah. like, it's just an additional tool to, you know, whatever it is. Fund. Document. And, and document or fund. Yeah. Um, I think it's one, it's great to put on the blockchain so you have it documented. Um, and then two, it's nice way for people to kind of contribute to the project if they want to yeah. uh, support it. Oh um, yeah, I had an I had an update on yeah, what, um on the whole NFT uh blockchain AI discourse cuz I think I don't remember which episode it was cuz we talk about AI pretty much every single right. episode. But but I had sort of this this thought about web3 and it being sort of a there's been a lot of discourse over the last like couple, was it a couple weeks or a month ago where there was that whole art station sort of like um, it was like a say a, no to air. Yeah. I didn't know that was art state. I don't, I didn't I really follow that trend. I think it was art station. I, you know, I could be wrong, but it did seem like a big thing that I was just not in the circle of. Right. Like I could hear it on the outside and yeah. like there's a lot of pushback against AI art, but I, from the from a design circle, it's kind of silent. Yeah. It seems for designers, it's much more of a tool. But right. I can see where artists and illustrators can really kind of see the threat there. Yeah, because I because obviously we know that these this AI is trained off of you know artwork of different artists okay. and you know so so that's, that that was its thing was it stealing art? From well, I think that, but also like just that art they didn't want ArtStation promoting it as like as art i guess or something yeah. like because it yeah because of like how it's being generated it's being generated off of like the original creative work of other people right. um and so i sort of had this thought of like couldn't couldn't web3 be sort of like an answer to the like the kind of privacy the creative um like ownership ownership mm -hmm um within the ai conversation and i was talking to my sister-in-law's boyfriend who is he's in real estate law but like okay. he, he he you know he understands like or at least knows people within copyright but i okay. basically was was saying that to him and he thought that that was a very good idea that basically like by putting things on the blockchain like you are, if somebody were to train AI off of an image and that image were to be on the blockchain, then like at least there would be sort of like a trail. Yeah. So in that way, like, yeah, it could potentially protect artists from, from AI, from people indiscriminately taking like imagery and feeding it into the AI without permission or even like, even I don't know, getting a royalty or whatever, like yeah, it could it could track all of that. I definitely think you're onto something with that thought. I feel like I've heard a little bit about trying to send royalties back to the original artists that train this data. I think I was reading an article the other day about it, and it is interesting because it's if you think about it, how many times is your image being trained or? Uh, how many time, how many images are being generated of you know say an original piece of artwork and how many images how many original artworks go into one ai image yeah. and at what you know and how much does you know it, i think at a certain point it's like the royalties that you'd be getting are fractions of a penny sure um, but most royalties are are like are fractions fair. of pennies fair yeah, uh, I'm not saying that's. I just think that's like, an excuse to not do it. But um, it feels like, if anything, the blockchain. I'm just gonna like throw out a bunch of jargon okay, and hope that it works. <laughs> but the blockchain, the algorithm, all, all of these things <laughs> could calculate yeah. more easily, like, like how, yeah, like how this royalty breaks out. I do, I do agree that there is the the. I don't even want to call it the paper trail because there's no paper involved, but there is a trail back to the original creator and going back to this hay bale sofa again it's uh part of the reason i minted it was just to s kind of stamp this is when i created the design and i remember uh, i want to say 
when I was in school, 2012, and I did the nightlight that got ripped off in China. Um, I was talking to some lawyer friends, and they had mentioned, I, I think I also had gotten a cease and desist from someone that said I had copied their lamp. It was a whole thing. Mm. A lot of, lot of buzz around that lamp. And one of the lawyers was like, well, you need to, if you can't get a patent, you need to at least uh, somehow verify that you've created this idea at a certain moment in time. Yeah. Um, and the way that we did that was I called my mom and cause at the time it had been a couple of months had passed and I had, you know, taken the sketches home or something. And I called my mom and was like, mom, can you take all the sketches, put them in a box, seal the box, mm. go to the post office right. and get them to, uh, ship the box and stamp over the seals. Yeah. And essentially that has a dated, uh, I guess provenance to it in the court. It's right. not. It's not. A, it's not as strong as patent by any means. Yeah. But if there was ever some sort of lawsuit where we had to go to court, we could take the box and we could open there, open it, and you know, being stamped by the government, it's like a, an approved. It has some weight to it. Um, but I think you are right that blockchain obviously kind of replaces that idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, yeah, blockchain is inherently like a decentralizing force. AI is very centralizing, so I definitely think there's some yin and yang there. Yeah, um, and it's 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 interesting thought. I don't really see the threads yet how it's going to function that way, but I think there it's definitely two opposing forces to some degree. Yeah, totally. Um, well, we won't have to rant about that too much because <laughs> you know how I go yeah. with watching stuff. Uh, Let's see what else. Can we I rant about something? Yeah, I'm ready for it. Let's see I this was rant. okay. See, I see I, this rant coming. I was looking. I don't know why I was looking at my phone. I feel like, you know, I feel like throughout the course of my career, I've definitely like refined my eye to be able to like see things that like I want to be one way, yeah. and I and I can tell or not. Like I feel like my eye is more in tune with like if lines are parallel with each other or if they're diverging or converging or like, is this actually concentric or whatever? Right. We have the designer. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so I'm looking at the back of my iPhone and I realize that the outside edge of the phone is not concentric with like the squared out rounded bump and like camera. There is the that bump and the camera are slightly smaller than the outside mm, mm -hmm. uh, radius of the phone. And I and just... And then you threw your phone. I, <laughs> I cracked your screen. I said, Clara, go take daddy's phone and put it in the trash. And we'll never speak of this again. Um, oh, man. Yeah. Rest in peace, Steve. Uh, I just... It's one of those things that like... I'm sure that I'm sure that there, it's no small thing to to design a, like a piece of equipment that is this well built right. and like and I'm sure there's all sorts of negotiations and this will feed into our topic around the constraints of like the tech and where things have to be placed and like the size of the camera as per like the spec that they're shooting for and everything but it's just like that that little <laughs> deviation. Well, you want to, you want me to break your heart again, James? <laughs> yes, please. Right. So obviously I've had that observation as well. And obviously, well, I think every design, I had that observation and I had my mom go to the post office and mail that observation to me. Yeah. So gonna, I'm taking you to court. We, we, we both have envelopes of our observations. <laughs> and now we're going to open them at the same time and see you at it first. Um, yeah, I don't, you, we could speculate on the reason why that radi the outside radius is smaller than the, the camera radius, but well, it's also like, you know, there's a custom, there's definitely a custom fillet, a custom radius to the outside of the phone. Right. It's all, and cheesy. but the, um, but the camera is a perfect circle. Mm. And so they, you're never going to get like, 
exact concentricity between them. But you can get perceived. Yes. Um, and it's not even that. It's not that. All right. You ready for this one, James? <laughs> All right. So the, the, what do we got? 14 Pro has three cameras on the back. Yeah. And they, in my mind, are... I initially thought they were all equally spaced. Have we talked about this? Oh, no. Um, they're not all equally spaced. Oh. I thought it was an equilateral equilateral, equilateral? equilateral triangle yeah. between all three of them. But the one on the right, the far one, the single one, is farther out. So now it's a, it's a bilateral triangle. Is that what they call it? But it's equally spaced to each each of like the the other cameras. Yeah. Like that one is equally spaced to the top left and to the bottom left. Yes. I would assume. Yes, it's centered. Yeah, right I mean that's left. yeah. And then you have the other the other like the flash. Well, those obviously are, those, those are, are not secondary. Yeah, but um, but it's really close. You just got to scooch it over. <laughs> it's kind of like it's kind of like your scenario where it's like really close. Yeah, it's super duper close. And the thing is, is like design design like this in in the age that we're in where you have you know this is a i would say this is very modern contemporary like given that it's so minimal it makes those things so much more mm, pronounced it's true. like walking into a modern building that has no crown molding like you can't help but see how bad the the like the meeting of the wall to the floor is right yeah and and like I, you know, you know what the intent was, but like, yeah, yeah I, I don't know. That's why I like crown molding actually. Cause it hides all the, the mistakes. Yeah. And I mean, it's such a, you know, it's an, an it's aesthetic, not, but it's, but it's hiding. Well, I guess I, I enjoy the charm. Yeah. I like, I, I, pre I would either prefer to live in a really modern place or a really charming place, but I don't enjoy living in like a very like um, a cookie cutter mm. apartment complex. Right, right, right. Have I, have I said this before on the podcast? In, in my opinion, I think modern contemporary furniture looks best in like an old French apartment. Interesting. Because of the contrast. Because of the contrast. Wow. I think modern furniture in a modern apartment looks banal. Like mm. it looks, like there's nothing about it that stand that then stands out as like special and unique and interesting. I can see as opposed as opposed to it's like backdrop. Like this, I mean, I think you you could say the same thing as like if you had a modern piece of furniture against like exposed brick or something. Just yeah, just having that contrast, mm. I think, is what uh, you know really accentuates the beauty of like a, a modern piece of furniture. That's a good point. I like that. Yeah. Would you say it's the opposite as well? Would you say having a non-modern, I don't want to say traditional because I think you can go like postmodern. Yeah. Something that's not modern in a very modern environment is also exciting. Yeah. I think about like a lot of like anti-design or like a lot of postmodern design. A lot of the, the trending of furniture design yeah. currently is not very modern. A lot of it's very postmodern. Yeah. Um, very like uh, craft, mm -hmm. I want to say. Yeah. No, I I do. I, I would agree with that. I think that like, you know, somebody like um, Marcel Vonders kind mm. of like explores that space of like something that feels traditional, but is contemporary and lives in like contemporary yeah. environments. Um, I like that. But yeah, it has like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think, I, I just think like contrast, understanding how to balance a space with like things that are, things that are clean juxtaposed to things that have texture and, you yeah. know, like all these things that sort of excite the senses. Like, I think you like, I don't know, I've definitely had the experience of walking into somewhere that's like, that's like super modern and every piece of it is modern and it just feels there's no charm. sterile. There's no character. Yeah, to charmless. Um, yeah, I like that. I also have one one more rant. Go for it. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know if this is a rant. But I will say sometimes I just, I, I'll post a little, you know, I've been on Twitter a lot recently. Um, 
ever since NFT stuff. And I've been posting a lot of just like design thoughts on Twitter that no one really ever sees, but you know, some, yeah. some people see them. Uh, but I had this thought the other day, I think I was talking to someone, it was either about the hay bale sofa or some other concept that I had just done quickly and, and rendered out very realistically. And, uh, I was at this design event and I was like, oh, yeah, it's, you know, I, I just did this concept. This is kind of what I've been working on recently. And I was like, kind of just saying like, yeah, it, it's fun, but it's not as cool as the furniture in this room. Cause we were at a big design event and like yeah, people yeah. had built this beautiful furniture that they were showing. Um, and the person I was talking to was like, yeah, but I mean, all you need is a couple thousand dollars. You can make that thing for real. Mm-hmm. And it kind of got me thinking because a lot of this stuff in the room, you know, a lot of the design world in New York is high design furniture design world. Uh, it's like collector collectible design, a lot of one-off pieces. Um, you know, a lot of the pieces in the room only had one in existence Yeah, and someone had just paid a couple thousand dollars to make it. And that's what gave it its importance. Um, and it got me thinking because I, I feel a lot of the design, at least in kind of the niche I'm in right now with furniture, it feels, feels like people are just making shapes. Mm. And I've been kind of ranting about this on Twitter. It's just like, it feels like someone made a big fluffy or squiggly shape and got it upholstered and got some nice photography done and everyone applauds them, Mm. which, you know, it's still a feat to make a a nice looking thing that is a good shape and is upholstered and stuff. But I don't know. I, I I feel like I, maybe I'm just, um, maybe just my personal style and and vision wants to push for more than just that. It just feels almost like we're entering maybe max postmodern maximalism era where mm-hmm. there's not much thought really going into designs nowadays, at least in the furniture scene where it's just shapes and shapes and shapes, more shapes, the better, the crazier, the better without much meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. And it went, you know, I, I just, I went, I was starting to spiral at this point and uh, <laughs> cause it was like, is that all I really need to do is I just need to spend a couple thousand dollars to make my render a reality. And then I get all the recognition. Is it really just about that extra thousand dollars that in getting a photograph made and you know, what's the difference between a photograph and a render if it's, if rendering has gotten to the point where it's, you know, perfect. Um, I don't know. That mm. was my rant. That, see, this is why I post on Twitter and no one reads it because it's, it's so incoherent. It just starts off and it Wait, okay. Me. So let me try and understand what, there's a, there's a few what, thoughts going on in what there, you're but, getting at. Yeah. Um, so the back to the first thought, which is like, is it, is it real? And is it valuable if it's not real? Yes. Is that? I would say that's probably the main thought. I mean, I, we could rant about postmodern design being kind of, reaching its maximus max maximal point right now. But, um, yeah, I think the main thought is, is going back to this idea that what's more valuable, the image or the physical thing. Mm. Obviously this kind of ties in a lot with the NFT world as well, just conceptually, um, social media conceptually where even those really nice high design collectible furniture pieces, at these exhibitions and galleries that cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and there's only one of them. The value of that design is not necessarily the the chair itself. It's not necessarily the physical thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's almost a piece of art. Mm-hmm. You know, the value is someone gets to buy it, put it in their home, take a photo, show it to the friends, says, hey, I got this thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a little bit of a status bragging rights game. But yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't really know if there's any coherent thought there. I just wanted to rant. <laughs> but but I think, I don't know. I think it's an interesting thought because like, especially, you know, we were just talking about NFTs. It's like, where where is the value when it comes to a, an object, a thing? Yeah. Well, this, uh, I recently watched, do you know Red Letter Media? 
I don't think so. They're like, they're, thing? yeah, they're okay. like, uh, they're like one of those OG YouTube channels that's been around for a long time. Their first like viral video was this like 10 part review of the Phantom Menace. That's like, okay. it's, you know, it's just like dogging on that movie sure. and yeah, yeah. it's very funny, but um, oh, that was my favorite one. <laughs> no, oh gosh. Uh, but there, I mean, there are people that feel that way. Yeah. It's, it's funny. There's like, it's the same thing with, um, people say like Weezer, like depending on where, when you found out about Weezer, like your favorite album will be at that point in their career. Interesting. But, hmm. and, but anyway, it's, um, that's an aside, but they recently made this video. Cause I guess people have started like getting VHS tapes, like, um, auth authenticated, like, uh, you know, like get, sending them to a ratings, an independent ratings agency to okay. get them rated and then sell them. It's like a collectible. Now. Yeah. Okay. Like they put them in a case, they give it a rating right? and then they sell those. And you know, some people, I think the first That's instance crazy. of it was actually like, like a fabricated story that ended up increasing the value of, of the whole market. Right. It's like, like the unreleased Shrek five VHS. Yeah. Tape. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they, what they did was they took this, this movie, there's this movie that they've been collecting. People have sent them VHSs of this movie called Nuki, which is like this movie from the eighties that is a terrible movie. Okay. Like nobody saw it, but it's a, it's like a joke for their channel is this is like people sending them nuki okay and and so their idea was that like they probably have almost every nuki vhs <laughs> in existence and so what they ended up doing was creating artificial scarcity they got a wood chipper and they destroyed oh. almost all of the tapes and then and now nuki tapes and, are worth a, yeah, a lot of money and then they got their their best one authenticated okay. by one of these third party and then they sold it on ebay How i think it money? ended up so selling for eighty thousand wow. dollars but they they donated all of it to charity yeah um but yeah i mean that's you know that's the thing is like uh, scarcity scarcity is valuable mm -hmm. obviously like there are certain artists that their names give lend value to something um depending on like yeah uh, i don't know any number of factors like the quality the quality and consistency of their work how much they're like impacting culture like yeah also just who they know and like are they featured in galleries and um but like I don't know. I do. I do tend to agree that I, th I believe that the value in something and it's probably why I'm a designer is in the physical object. Right. And, uh, because like, I think there's just so many, there's so many more barriers to, um, the creation of the physical object and the execution of it. And it, and I think it has to be beautifully executed, but mm -hmm. there's so many more barriers to it than to like to model something and make a rendering of something is like a is is a step in the overall design process right. before making something yeah but to make something in my opinion is so much more of uh of an investment into like cr the creation of that idea and right. to make it real like you're taking on just a lot like the artist him, themselves is taking on much more risk to like put invest money into the art. Um, yeah. and, and so like, I think that to me is a part of the value of an object is like the amount of investment that the artist has put of themselves into it. Yeah. I think that's, very well put because I think I ended that Twitter thread on the last tweet, which says maybe it's just as simple as thinking design is important enough to spend the resources to make it real. Yeah. Maybe it is just about spending enough resources, whether it's time or money. Um, and then I kind of ended it again, going back to my rant about maybe people should 
think a little bit harder about what they're spending the resources on and not just make another, you know, squiggly chair or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. Anyways, that's my, my rant. Yeah. Nice. Fo- follow me on Twitter. If you, if you're interested in those, you know, unhinged. Uh, <laughs> <tweets>. <laughs> Let's see what else we got going on here. I, uh, should we get to the the bigger broader topic yeah Uh, i mean i think that this this feeds into a lot of what we were just talking about which is um which is constraints and and designing under constraints and um you know i think when i decided when i decided to jump in on peloton full-time was like that was a very deliberate decision to like get really involved with the constraints of the process. Yeah. Cause like for the longest time I had been freelancing and you know, a lot of freelancing you end up doing mostly front end work and not a lot of back end work and back end work is when you're like face head on with like the constraints Mm -hmm. of so many different constraints. Uh, but the, I mean, the big ones that I think about are like our cost constraints and, uh, materials process constraints, which I mean, kind of go hand in hand, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm just curious your thoughts, Nick, on constraints, how you see them, how you deal with them. Yeah. Well, I think the thought that when we were talking about this topic just to 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 get it ready for the podcast my the one idea that popped to my head is that design without constraints is art Mm. i think thinking back to kind of the the high design and collectible design world that i now am tangential to it feels like those ten thousand dollar chairs have zero constraints right the constraint of making something out of solid marble is, you know, there's no, you know, I guess there's a manufacturing constraint there, but the cost constraint is gone, mm-hmm. you know, coming from, you know, originally making dog toys and then of course working on a variety of other kind of consumer facing products. Cost has always been a huge constraint. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but the marble chair, the, the marble table or marble chair the constraint there is some constraint to like what the material can do and how you're able to shape the material Mm -hmm. and the other constraint is your own finances to be able to produce it to get the marble and produce it and then the constraint of like well i guess this is not constraint but the gamble of will somebody (laughs) consider this thing that i carved out of marble valuable enough that I will not only recoup my losses, but make a profit. Yeah. I guess in that sense, that's a constraint. I definitely think the manufacturing constraints there too. I think, like you said, there's, there is a variety of constraints. I was also thinking brand constraints. Mm -mm. I think Mm. a lot of times I feel like I remember this. Well, not necessarily at, at PetMate, but the one thing was that I feel like I've run into is does this fit the brand or not? Mm, that's like my favorite conversation at work. <laughs> I love, I love that. I, yeah, I feel like that at, at Peloton, I mean, you know, I only did a few little details here and there for them, but that was definitely a very big thing. You guys yeah. have a very big, and you obviously you've talked about your, uh, setting up your whole brand language for the, the company. Um, that, that one seems much more fluid. It's mm. like you can debate it, mm-hmm. whether it's a, a valuable detail to deviate from the brand language or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, I think for me, I mean, there's definitely times at, at work where I maybe don't see it as, as everybody else sees it and, and maybe someone else sees it more clearly than me, but there's definitely, I think like after, working in the industry as long as I have and like working with different brand languages, I feel like I've gotten pretty good at just like, this is where I should explore. This is where I should not explore. Mm. Um, 
Because I think that's the secret of the brand language that that people may not understand is that it's it's a tool for efficiency. Just like right. just like with um, cost and and materials, yeah. like constraints actually make can, the design easier to design. Yeah, in um, in many cases. I think. Yeah, because I think having no constraints is the problem with art is that it it is the it is unconstrained in that like nobody nobody's giving you your individual brand language right. nobody's giving you necessarily like a material to work with it's like how do you manifest like yourself in a statement th th like that's it yeah you know uh but yeah um, i do you have it well so the other thing i was thinking about is specific examples of products that are great because they are constrained and then also vice versa products that are bad because they're constrained. I have, I have a few ideas. Products that are great because they're constrained. Yeah. Constrained in what way? Like Anyway. I, so I'll, I'll tell you some. Uh, I think some of this is kind of self-imposed on myself. Um, I wouldn't say my, I did the a plastic chair concept a while back. Um, I don't remember if we posted on the pod or not or talked about it on the pod. Um, and I think of a constraint that I think about a lot with furniture is stackability. Mm. And sometimes that can make the design great. Like that could be the feature, not necessarily yeah. the feature, but like the defining moment of a design. But I think, I think to make a great, to make it great though, I, a chair can't read as stackable. Mm. Like, like it's even though after. that's a constraint, right. like I shouldn't look at a chair and my first thought be like, oh, that's stackable. Right. Like I think, yeah, I don't know. Like I think what, I think you had said this earlier or you were just mentioning it to me or I think I wrote it down. What does it say? The best designs seem like they've had no constraints. Yeah. Even though they've had a ton of constraints. Sure. Um, because like, as I've become so painfully aware of in <laughs> working at Peloton is like the, the amount of negotiation that you have to do <laughs> with the constraints, like, you know, between design and other teams, right. between design and marketing, between design and engineering, like there are just most of the day I do feel very lucky that I feel like most of my job is designing, but like most of the day's worth of meetings is filled with just constraint negotiations yeah. of like, like, do we have, do we have the money for this? Like if we don't put money into this, do we put money into this instead? Right. Like what's the highest touch point piece on this product? And is that worth more money than this other piece even though that's maybe more visible to the user, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's just like all of these really interesting conversations. And I don't know that I'm necessarily like a great negotiator when it comes to these things, but it is, it is really interesting that like, I don't think people understand the, like uh, the lengths to which like things are debated. Right. And like sometimes Sometimes design wins, sometimes it loses. <laughs> sometimes engineering wins, sometimes it loses. But like you hope that in the end, nobody looks at it, at a product and says like, wow, that looks like a huge compromise. Yeah, <laughs> that's the worst. Man. Yeah. I feel like I've had, I, I've definitely had constraints that I almost don't want to blame the constraints I, I would blame myself that mm. I just didn't design well enough under the constraints. The products that I can think of off the top of my head right now are litter boxes. I feel like almost every litter box I designed had enormous constraints on it. Yeah. Um, back when I was designing at PetMate, uh, they just have to be very cheap and they're very big objects and those things do not mesh well. Yeah. So you got to resort to stacking, you got to resort to size sizing. Um, Got to resort to like th wall thickness of like how thin can you make this plastic yeah. and still be a usable product. I remember one time specifically, I designed this beautiful litter box. It was almost like just a very clean kind of filleted cube 
but you know all the surfaces were slightly curved so it felt very like soft and kind of round and squishy not it wasn't squishy but it was like very clean yeah and i present it and everyone loves it and so we start moving forward and then we realize like oh we have to take some cost out of it and the only place to take cost out was just thin the walls down mm. you thin the walls down and now it's not structural enough right and now we have to figure out how do we add structure back into this design that's perfectly smooth and flat ribs and ribs yeah bone lines yeah. and oh man oh <laughs> it, it felt like a dagger going in my heart and just yeah. twisting like just having my boss say like nick we have to we have to add structure and we have to add some sort of crease some sort of like you know bone line or detail yeah and you know just taking that perfect you know minimal squircle and just adding a a line to it just felt like that is interesting because like I think most of the time people would would see bone lines on things and be like like oh man the designer like got way too carried away exactly. but actually exactly. it's like there's a there's a functional benefit mm -hmm. to something like that yeah I think in hindsight and this is why I kind of you know I, you could always blame someone else but like the idea is in hindsight if I would have known that that's how it would have played out I wouldn't have done the perfect you know clean sphere I would have had maybe some sort of textured like pleated look to a, mm. to a litter box or something kind of interesting like that yeah yeah um, so you kind of incorporate a bone line and structure but not in a very uh, you know quote-unquote like car designer way you know <laughs> um, but but that's but it's interesting because like I I'm sure that you had no there was no other process that you could have chosen from in that instance. Like that's the thing that people maybe don't understand about the use of plastic is like, it is the cheapest, the lightest, the like how you get all those features built right. into something, something that can like have a feature to hold a door and, you know, to be super cleanable or, you know, whatever it is like there's, Sometimes right. that's the only option like that you have. Like indoor cats only exist because we have plastic litter boxes. <laughs> Metal litter boxes that would cost, you know, $200 would mean that there are no indoor cats. There's only outdoor cats. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, uh, but here's another constraint. You want to hear another constraint? Yeah, go for okay. it. I feel like I'm just, they're popping in my mind now. One yeah. that I'm working on currently is the strap box. I think we showed that last podcast or one of the podcasts, but, uh, my plan is to have them CNC'd mm. just out of plywood. And the thing about seeing CNC'ing interior corners is that you can never get a perfect right angle because mm. the drill bits are, you know, a circle and right. it goes up. And so you have a couple options, right? You can kind of go past the edge of the corner and create kind of a, they call it a dog bone. It kind of looks like a, you know, extra little hoop mm. uh, or a little cutout. And then it's perfectly it'll perfectly fit together or you can chisel it by hand mm. chisel out a radius corner to make it 90 degree. Um, I mean, there's probably a few other ways you could do it in terms of secondary processes, but it's one of these constraints. That's like, do you make the product cost, you know, $30 more, $40 more for the consumer yeah. to have these perfectly chiseled, you know, box joint look. Yeah. Or do you, you know, keep it cheaper and have a little, even if it's the smallest detail, right? Even if it's the, the fillet that doesn't match the camera yeah. on the iPhone, you know? Yeah. Um, no, I mean, all that, all that would be, um, I mean, that's a whole, that could be a whole other topic, but sort of like post-processing because mm. there's like, you know, w when you think about how something is made, there's like the primary process, so like injection molded or welded or whatever, and then, or like forming welding, but then there's like the post process. Right. So like, for instance, at my dad's company, rotational molding, like there's, you know, if you wanted to add a, like if you wanted a handle in there, you designed a handle, like you would have to create a fixture. There would be a fixture that would be needed to make and, and you would take a router to that yeah. and somebody would cut that out yeah, by hand and yeah, by hand. 
and you would have to make it, you know, rep like be able to be replicated. You get the same quality every single time. And then like, you would also like take in, they have these tools that'll just like, that'll just like remove the sharp edge. Burr, burr yeah. remover tools of, I don't yeah. know what the term is called, but. And so like, you know, all of that time and process, like it, ad it adds up. It's not like a, that in that instance in particular, like not a huge added cost. Right. Um, but yeah, like all of these, all of these things, like again, injection molding, like it, like injection molding, you can get in a lot of, of that feature into like the, the shot of the mold, right? Like you can, you can shoot the, the main body and then you can also shoot an over mold into it. And then like, yeah, like, and then everything snap fits together. Like, you know, the right. less, the less you have to do post-processing, like, you know, the better it is some, most of the time for cost. Um, but you know, like it just depends on like, there's those details. Yeah. It's those like, like what, what, what you're saying with like the handles or like, I, you know, I'm sure there's some handles that you would love to add to a piece because it doesn't look you know, cheap because if you have a injection mold to handle, maybe you have to do some sort of weird shut off, you know, and it's like, well, if we did it this way, we have a nicer handle, but it's going to cost labor and a little bit extra, uh, you know, money on the, the consumer end. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's a tough thing. I, yeah, I mean, but I think that's the beauty of it. Right. No, that I'm, and it does, it hones your create your creativity and your creative process. And like, I think that's what you, that's what you want is like constraints provide that boundary yeah. to, to, to be creative against, I guess like the question is like, is, is a good designer, somebody who can design something from the start, understanding all the constraints, like, so that they don't have to enter into all these negotiations right. or is a good designer, just somebody that has vision and then the creativity to navigate the constraints to like end up with something that's not quite like what they had designed originally, but is like still beautiful. And that's a good question. I think obviously you could do both ways. I like to think the first way is probably best. Mm-hmm to think about every possible outcome at the beginning that you can. It's it's also the more time-consuming one, right? The second option is I sketch something out. It's this really cool, beautiful object or whatever, and someone wants to make it. So now it's like, oh, okay, well, crap, I didn't really think it all the way through, and now <laughs> it's going to get changed, and now your heart's going to get broken. Right. Um, whereas if you kind of think a design all the way through at the beginning – you are more confident in how it's going to get executed. Yeah. You kind of can present that to a client or uh, the manufacturer and say, Hey, this is, you know, I've already thought about, I've already thought about the draft angles. I've already thought about the structure. I've already thought about all these yeah. X, Y, and Z that I know that you're going to ask me. I think, I think that also is, um, I think that's also something where, you can build a stronger bond with a manufacturer or a mm -hmm. client where they kind of respect your expertise a bit more because you are speaking their language. I yeah. think we've talked about this on like an engineering slash designer episode where when you kind of talk the engineer's language, you know, there's some mutual respect there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think about like the, the Panton chair right. and how or like, like the juicy Salif and how like the Panton chair, I, from what I remember, like he, had the inkling that it could work yeah and he just like had to go from manufacturer to manufacturer to see who would like try to figure it out with him yeah and i think like that's that's a large part of like of of um being a great designer is like knowing where you could push a technology and but then finding the right partner to do it with mm -hmm. but i have to imagine that like with with an independent designer like yourself like I feel like you almost do need to like be more understanding of the constraints and, and understand how to play within them because like you don't necessarily have the staffing 
like the engineering staffing of Peloton or right. something like that, where I can, I can like lob things over to the engineers to like, to, to continue to develop and like, maybe they see something and opportunities or like ways to make it work that I don't. Um, or yeah, just like understand how to, how to execute it in the end. But for you, like you don't necessarily have that luxury. Yeah. And like you, you do then have to rely on somebody like the manufacturer and their engineering to like, to, um, to figure that out. But but yeah, I will say, uh, especially like in the licensing area that I'm in, I, I was talking, or I think I had either read an article about, uh, either read or was talking to Jamie Wolfon, uh, who is another furniture designer in the space. And, uh, he's very big on developing like the physical prototype and yeah. playing with the physical, um, which obviously I think, you know, we all agree is an important aspect you know, I kind of questioned at the beginning with the, the Twitter rant, but I think, you know, we're still making physical objects at the end of the day. It's super important. But the point was, is that if you develop a concept all the way through to a functional prototype that also works and looks and has, you know, 95% of the processes figured out, whether it's, you know, this part would be injection molded, this part would be stamped metal, you know, whatever the parts and pieces are put together it's much more enticing for a company or manufacturer mm. to, to say, actually, we'd love to par- partner with you that, on that because I can already see that you have everything already figured out. We can just go press the button and hit go. Yeah. Um, so that was his point or strategy. Yeah. And I think something that maybe people don't realize about manufacturers, and maybe this isn't true, I, th- I, th- I think this must be true, is that like, if you're if you're a manufacturer, you would love to be able to say like we figured out this complex problem, like and now we sort of like own the expertise within this like specific hmm. way of doing something. That's interesting. And so then people are going to like seek seek that kind of manufacturer out to do that specific thing or to figure out something specific. Right. But you know, you have to imagine that somebody... I think about, like, microprocessors. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. that's a very specific... And people go to certain manufacturers for computer chips and things. Right. Yeah. Um, but, like, even just, like, hinges and things like that. Yeah. Like, if somebody has figured out something, like, then people are going to seek out that expertise. Right. And so, like, it it benefits manufacturers to like work with designers on these kind of problems. Cause then they can unlock a new level of expertise for themselves to sell to the broader market. Yeah. I don't know. That's interesting. That's, that's I think that that's the case. Um, I don't know. There's, I feel like there's a lot of good thoughts in there, James. I feel like definitely could spur off some other yeah. topics. Um, don't know if we have time for, uh, a question so we'll save it for next episode but if you guys have a question or thoughts on this episode make sure you send it to my details podcast at gmail.com and yeah i guess we'll uh talk to you next time yeah as always i'm nick and i'm james peace later that was not ai that was us for <laughs> <laughs>